0: Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the October podcast. As has become our custom, Sarah Forge will read the abstracts and then I will return with some commentary.
1: Our first paper this month is by Hess et al. from Massachusetts General Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. Its title is, A Survey of the Use of Noninvasive Ventilation in Academic Emergency Departments in the United States. The objective of this study was to determine the frequency of and barriers to use of noninvasive ventilation, or NIV, for adult patients with acute asthma, COPD, and CHF in academic emergency departments. A survey instrument was developed by the authors, pilot-tested, and distributed to one physician and one respiratory therapist at the 132 hospitals with emergency medicine residencies. The response rate was 90%. 99% of therapists and 64% of physicians were very familiar with NIV. The reported time needed to initiate NIV was less than 10 minutes for 41% of sites and less than 20 minutes for 89%. Compared to the time requirement in other clinical areas, 60% of respiratory therapists reported that NIV takes no additional time in the emergency department. A therapist is always present in 38% of emergency departments, and equipment for NIV is readily available in 76% of the emergency departments. The majority report that NIV use is about right for acute COPD, CHF, and asthma. NIV is used infrequently for asthma. 89% report use in less than 20% of these patients, while 66% report use in more than 20% of COPD patients, and 67% report use in greater than 20% of CHF patients. The perceived utility of NIV was significantly different between the three diagnoses. There was more uncertainty about the utility for NIV for asthma. Bi-level ventilators and oronasal masks are most commonly used for NIV. Nearly all of the centers administer bronchodilators in line with NIV. The authors concluded that, consistent with available evidence, NIV use is more common in the emergency department for acute COPD and CHF than for acute asthma. Barriers to greater use of NIV in the emergency department include physician familiarity, availability of therapists and equipment in the emergency department, and time required for NIV. For acute asthma, uncertainty about therapeutic benefits remains a challenge next we have the paper non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure a national survey of veterans affairs hospitals by beerver and suhu from the los angeles veterans affairs health care center in this study a survey of physicians and respiratory therapists was conducted to better understand the use of niv in this setting three hospitals in each of 21 veterans affairs networks were selected based on severity of patient mix Level of Staffing and Workload A request was sent via email to Veterans Affairs Respiratory Therapists and Critical Care Physicians at these hospitals to complete a 41-question survey using an Internet-based survey site. Previous experience and training in NIV was limited. NIV is reported to be widely available and applied in both monitored and unmonitored settings. NIV was identified as a first-line option for COPD and CHF, but perceived use was less. 64% of therapists felt NIV was used less than 50% of the time when indicated, compared to 29% of physicians. Reported NIV use varied, with 45% treating 0 to 4 patients a month, and 23% with greater than 10 patients a month. Larger ICUs reported more frequent use of NIV than smaller ICUs. Written guidelines were noted by 65%, but only 27% had titration guidelines. The perceived efficacy of NIV was low, with a success rate greater than 50%, noted by only 29% of respondents. The authors concluded that this survey revealed a wide range of training and experience, location of use, presence of written guidelines, and methods of delivery. Notable perceptual differences exist between respiratory therapists and physicians. Underutilization of NIV and low rates of perceived efficacy are major findings. The performance of maximum inspiratory pressure tests and maximum inspiratory pressure reference equations for four ethnic groups is by Sachs et al. from the University of Washington, University of Arizona, and Columbia University Medical Center. The objective of this study was to evaluate the ability of adults over a wide age range and multiple ethnicities to perform maximum inspiratory pressure, MIP, tests. The Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis recruited white, African-American, Hispanic, and Chinese-American participants ages 45 to 84 years and free of clinical cardiovascular disease in six United States cities. MIP was measured using standard techniques among 3,849 multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis participants. The MIP quality goal was five maneuvers with the two largest values matching within 10 centimeters of water. Correlates of MIP quality and values were assessed in logistic and linear regression models. There were 51% female, 35% white, 26% African American, 23% Hispanic, and 16% Chinese American. The average MIP was 73 cm of water for women and 97 cm of water for men. The quality goal was achieved by 83% of the cohort and was associated with female sex, older age, race or ethnicity, study site, low ratio of FEV1 to FVC, and wheeze with dyspnea. The multivariate correlates of MIP were male sex, younger age, higher body mass index, shorter height, higher FVC, higher systolic blood pressure in women, and health status in men. There were no clinically important race or ethnic differences in MIP values. The authors concluded that race-specific reference equations for MIP are unnecessary in the United States. More than 80% of adults can be successfully coached for five maneuvers with repeatability within 10 centimeters of water. Solomita et al. from Stony Brook University Medical Center present the paper, Humidification and Secretion Volume in Mechanically Ventilated Patients. The objective of this study was to determine potential effects of humidification on the volume of airway secretions in mechanically ventilated patients. Water vapor delivery from devices providing non-heated wire humidification heated wire humidification, and heat and moisture exchanger, or HME, were quantified on the bench. Then, patients requiring 24-hour mechanical ventilation were exposed sequentially to each of these humidification devices, and secretions were removed and measured by suctioning every hour during the last four hours of the 24-hour study period. In vitro water vapor delivery was greater using non-heated wire humidification compared to heated wire humidification and HME. In vivo, a total of nine patients were studied. Secretion volume for following humidification by non-heated wire humidification was significantly greater than for heated wire humidification and HME. The authors concluded that the volume of secretions appeared to be linked to humidification, as greater water vapor delivery measured in vitro was associated with greater secretion volume in vivo. Influence of moisture accumulation in inline spacer on delivery of metered-dose inhaler through mechanical ventilation is by Lynn et al from Cheng University Georgia State University and the Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute The authors used in vitro model to quantify the impact of accumulated humidity in a pressurized metered-dose inhaler or pmdi spacer and ventilator over time A ventilator with an adult heated wire ventilator circuit and humidifier was set to deliver adult settings. An impactor was placed between the endotracheal tube and the test lung to determine drug mass and mass median aerodynamic diameter of the aerosol delivered. An aerovent PMDI spacer was placed in the inspiratory limb of the ventilator circuit and left in an open position. Eight actuations of albuterol were administered at one two and three hours after the heater had reached equilibrium at 35 degrees Celsius and less than 10 minutes after turning off the heater humidifier. The spacer was dried and returned to the heated circuit for additional testing. Samples were analyzed via spectrophotometer. The delivered drug as a percent of emitted dose was greater at one hour and with the dry spacer than at hours two and three or with the humidifier off. Mass, median, aerodynamic diameters with each comparison did not vary between conditions. Delivery efficiency was similar for the dry spacer and the spacer in the humidified circuit for one hour. However, once visible condensate occurred, drug delivery efficiency decreased by approximately 50%. The authors concluded that aerosol delivery from PMDI with spacer during mechanical ventilation was greater with a dry spacer and unchanged for the first hour after initiating heated humidification. Turning off the heated humidifier did not increase drug delivered. Next is the paper, Output and Aerosol Properties of Five Nebulizer Compressor Systems with r for Motorol Inhalation Solution, by Bauer et al. from Sepracor and Cirrus Pharmaceuticals. This study compared the aerosol properties of afromotorol delivered via five commonly used nebulizer systems for the home care market. The delivered dose of afromotorol inhalation solution was collected in a glass dreschel type apparatus. The delivered amount in fine droplet fraction was assessed with an Anderson Cascade impactor, and droplet size was evaluated via laser diffraction. Compressor flow rate measurements were taken after one minute and six minutes by placing the flow meter in line with each system. The PARI LC+, Plus Updraft II OptiNeb, and Nebutec systems delivered similar amounts of the dose. The Pari-LC-STAR and Sidestream systems delivered slightly higher doses. The Nebulizer-Compressor systems differed somewhat with respect to droplet size. The Nebutech delivered the lowest fine droplet fraction via Anderson Cascade impactor and the smallest percent of droplets less than 5 microns via laser diffraction. The Pari-LC star and side stream delivered the highest fine droplet fraction and the greatest percent of droplets less than 5 microns. Compressor flow rates ranged from 3.2 liters per minute with the pari LCE plus to 5.4 liters per minute with the Nebutec. The authors concluded that the choice of nebulizer-compressor system can influence the aerosol properties of arfamotorol inhalation solution and should be considered when prescribing nebulized medications. The review paper, Assessment of Maximal Respiratory Mouth Pressures in Adults, is by Evans and Whitelaw from the University of Calgary maximal inspiratory pressure, MIP, and maximal expiratory pressure, MEP, are simple, convenient, and non-invasive indices of respiratory muscle strength at the mouth, but standards are not clearly established. The authors reviewed recent literature and proposed reference values and lower limits of normal as a function of age for adults age up to about 70 years. Because male pressures are higher than female and MEP exceeds MIP, they present four linear regression reference equations as a function of age for adults aged up to approximately 70 years. The authors discuss normal values in older subjects, estimation of lower limits of normal, and the relationship between vital capacity and respiratory muscle strength, and offer a guide to interpretation of maximal pressure measurements. The approach should allow direct implementation of MIP and MEP in a pulmonary function laboratory. The paper, How to Find the Best Evidence, is by Chatburn from the Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine, and Case Western Reserve University. The internet has made finding evidence for clinical practice fairly easy. Many different types of databases are available for free or for subscription that can be searched for relevant key terms. Bibliographic or library databases contain books, book chapters, reports, citations, abstracts, and either the full text of the articles indexed or links to the full text. Citation databases are specially designed so that you can track the progress of an idea or research topic by searching the published works that cite a particular author or article. Synthesized databases are pre-filtered records for particular topics. They are usually subscription base with relatively large fees, but you can get free access in libraries. This type of database may provide the best evidence without extensive searches of standard bibliographic databases. Portals are web pages that act as a starting point for using the web or web-based services and links to books, journals, patient education resources, and images. Many medical journals, including respiratory care, are now available online. Finally, even generalized search engines such as Google, Yahoo, Ask, and Dogpile can provide a wealth of information on medical topics. How to Read a Scientific Research Paper is by Durbin from the University of Virginia. Reading is the most common way that adults learn. With the exponential growth in information, no one has time to read all they need. Reading original research, although difficult, is rewarding and important for growth. Building on past knowledge, the reader should select papers about which he already holds an opinion. Rather than starting at the beginning, this author suggests approaching a paper by reading the conclusions in the abstract first. The method should be next reviewed, then the results first in the abstract and then in the full paper. For efficiency at each step, regions should be sought not to read any further in the paper. By using this approach, new knowledge will be obtained and many papers will be evaluated, read, and considered. Calcut and Branson from the University of Cincinnati present the paper, How to Read a Review Paper. Review papers commonly summarize the current knowledge on a selected topic. These types of papers are considered narrative reviews. Narrative reviews rarely detail the methods used to select the literature included, nor do the authors typically report the purpose of the review. Narrative reviews may be biased due to inadequate literature reviews or individual beliefs. A systematic review limits bias by disclosing the purpose of the paper, the assembly of the literature, and the appraisal of study quality. A meta-analysis, a specific type of systematic review, quantitatively pools data from individual studies for re-analysis. Pooling data increases the sample size and improves statistical power. The common representation of a meta-analysis is the forest plot. The forest plot demonstrates the odds ratio of individual studies, the weight each trial contributes to the analysis, and the 95% confidence intervals. Systematic reviews and meta-analyses are not without shortcomings, including issues related to study heterogeneity. Systematic evaluations of the literature are superior to narrative reviews due to transparency. How to Read a Case Report or Teach in Case of the Month is by Pearson from the University of Washington. Case reports are of minor importance in evidence-based medicine but can nonetheless make meaningful contributions to both knowledge and education. Although many traditional medical journals publish fewer case reports in this era of space constraints and preoccupation with impact factors, new internet-based journals are also appearing that focus exclusively on reports of individual cases. Given the variability of documentation, objectivity, and interpretation among the case reports now accessible by clinicians and trainees, it is important to be able to read them critically and to use the information they contain appropriately. This article discusses factors to consider in evaluating individual case reports and provides a practical semi-quantitative scheme for assessing their potential validity and educational value. The paper Translating Evidence into Practice is also by Pearson. Appropriately designed and conducted research is necessary for improving patient care and optimizing health outcomes, but access to best evidence is not enough to make these things happen. In respiratory care, as in other fields, patients do not benefit as much as they should from research findings and evidence-based practice guidelines. Current standards for the diagnosis, staging, and management of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are based in large parts on the results of spirometry, yet most patients carrying this diagnosis have not had this test performed. Despite compelling evidence that it saves lives, reduces complications, and decreases costs in acute respiratory failure complicating chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, noninvasive ventilation is not used in a large proportion of such cases. Lung protective ventilation for acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome also increases survival, decreases complications, and is cost effective, yet many patients who stand to benefit do not receive it. Clinicians may not be aware of practice guidelines or be familiar with their recommendations. They may not agree with the recommendations or have insufficient expectation that management according to the guideline will work. They may consider the guideline too complicated or difficult to use in their own practices. Patient-related factors may interfere, and changing established practice is often difficult. Overcoming these and other barriers to best practice is the focus of knowledge translation, which recognizes the need for involvement of every aspect of healthcare care and seeks to integrate them effectively. This article discusses the challenges faced by knowledge translation, provides examples of its successful application in respiratory care, and summarizes what needs to be done if the potential benefits of available evidence are to be realized for both individual patients and the healthcare system as a whole.
0: I'm back with some commentary on this month's papers. There is now a very mature evidence base supporting use of NIV in appropriately selected patients. We begin the October issue of Respiratory Care with the results of two surveys related to the use of NIV. These studies investigated the penetration of NIV use into everyday practice. My colleagues and I evaluated the frequency of and barriers to use of NIV for adult patients with acute asthma, COPD, and CHF in academic emergency departments. We found that NIV use is more common in the emergency department for acute COPD and CHF than for acute asthma barriers to greater use of niv in the emergency department included physician familiarity availability of respiratory therapist and equipment in the emergency department and time required for niv beer and soho evaluated the utilization of niv in the veterans affairs health care system they report wide variability of niv use in this setting unfortunately They found underutilization of NIV and low rates of perceived efficacy. In his editorial, Chamello explains that these two surveys, when taken together, show that physicians are less trained and familiar with NIV compared to respiratory therapists. This suggests an opportunity for respiratory therapists to instruct their physician colleagues on the benefits of NIV, which could lead to better patient outcomes. MIP evaluates inspiratory muscle strength. It is commonly measured not only in the pulmonary function laboratory, but also in the intensive care unit, hospital wards, and clinics. This month, we published two papers related to predictive equations for MIP and MEP. Sachs et al. enrolled white, African-American, Hispanic, and Chinese-American participants aged 45 to 84 years and free of clinical cardiovascular disease in six United States cities. They report that more than 80% of adults can be successfully coached for five maneuvers with repeatability within 10 centimeters of water. They also report that race-specific reference equations for MIP are unnecessary. Evans and Waitlaw reviewed the recent literature and proposed reference values and lower limits of normal as a function of age for adults aged up to 70 years. These two papers differ in several ways, some of which are pointed out in the editorial by Petrini and Haynes. Evans and Waitlaw developed their reference equations by amalgamation, whereas the reference equations by Sachs et al. come from direct measurements. Evans and Whitelaw provide reference equations for both MIP and MEP, whereas Sachs et al. only provide such for MIP. Sachs et al. used a straight mouthpiece to measure MIP, whereas Evans and Whitelaw only included studies that used a flanged mouthpiece. As shown by Petrini and Haynes, the reference equations reported in these two studies yield slightly different results. Additional work is needed to identify the best technique and the best reference equations for MIP and MEP. Salomito et al. determined the potential effects of humidification on the volume of airway secretions in mechanically ventilated patients. They compared non-heated wire circuits, heated wire circuits, and HMEs. In their in vitro experiments, they found that water vapor delivery was greater using non-heated wire circuits. In patients, airway secretion volume using humidification with non-heated wire circuits was also greater. Presumably, the greater secretion volume was related to greater water vapor delivery. This study again makes the point that all humidification systems are not created equal and that heated wire circuits in HMEs may be suboptimal. The primary motivation for the use of heated wire circuits in HMEs is to maintain a dry circuit. However, if the circuit is dry, the patient's respiratory tract may also be dry. What is unclear from this study is whether the results might have been different for higher temperature settings with the heated wire circuit and for different brands of humidifier and HME. Lynn et al. report the results of an in vitro study to quantify the impact of accumulated humidity in the MDI spacer in a ventilator circuit. They found that aerosol delivery from a meter dose inhaler with spacer during mechanical ventilation was greater with a dry spacer. The inhaled mass decreased by as much as 50% once the spacer was visibly saturated with humidity. As the authors acknowledge, the spacer used in this study is not designed to remain open between doses. Although other brands of inline spacers do remain open in the circuit, further work is needed to determine whether the results of this study can be generalized to other spacer devices. Different nebulizer compressor systems can result in different drug output which may impact drug delivery and clinical efficacy. Bauer et al. compared the aerosol properties of r 4 delivered via five commonly used nebulizer systems for home care. They report differences in r delivery between devices. Although these results provide some guidance in prescribing nebulized medications, the clinical importance remains to be determined. Each year, the journal hosts a symposium at the annual Congress of the American Association for Respiratory Care. The title of the symposium at the 2008 Congress was, How to Read the Respiratory Care Literature. The presentations are by associate editors of Respiratory Care, and we are pleased to publish the related papers this month. As Chatburn indicates, the internet has made finding evidence for clinical practice fairly easy. Many medical journals, including Respiratory Care, are now available online in full text. In addition, many different databases are available that can be searched with relevant key terms. Once a paper of interest is found, one needs to read the paper in a critical way. Tips for reading a scientific research paper are provided by Durbin. Many times you will be interested in reading a review paper rather than all of the original research papers that go into that review. Calcutt and Branson describe how to read a review paper, particularly a systematic review that quantitatively pulls data from individual studies for reanalysis. Although case reports are of minor importance in evidence-based medicine, they nonetheless make meaningful contributions to both knowledge and education. Pearson explains how to read a case report or teaching case of the month. In the final paper from this symposium, Pearson discusses the challenges faced in translating knowledge into practice and provides examples of its successful application in respiratory care. As a group, these papers provide a useful primer on how to read the respiratory care literature. This month, we published two case reports. The first, by Uchida, reports three cases of late presentation of double aortic arch in school aged children presumed to have asthma. The second, by Harini et al., reports two cases of acute respiratory distress syndrome in pregnant patients treated with airway pressure release ventilation. The teaching case of the month, by Hagi et al., describes a right paratracheal air cyst. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.